Well, recent surveys uh, have indicated that perhaps as many as 25% at any given time of the population is affected by depression. In fact, I said it in the first service, and I, I will say it here this morning, and will probably say it again. You probably have been depressed at some point. You are depressed right now. Or things could change pretty easily, which would cause you to be dis- depressed, even in this service, if I go long enough, or later today or this week. Depression is very real. In fact, it's estimated that in America, depression costs our society as much as $80 billion a year. And to say that it's a serious issue is probably a huge understatement. I want to, this morning, use a definition of depression, which is uh, not unique with me. In fact, there's a lot of things that I'll share this morning that, uh, quite frankly, aren't unique with me. Uh, There are things you may have heard uh, before. But for the sake of our time together this morning, I want to use this definition of depression. Depression is a temporary emotional state which is characterized by exaggerated feelings of sadness. Key word there is exaggerated feelings of sadness, a hopelessness that's not consistent with reality. Have you found that to be true when you're depressed, when you're discouraged, that most often, especially as you come out of that, you realize that your hopelessness was not really consistent with what reality really was. Depression causes us to deal with circumstances in a negative way and make them larger than they actually are. I've asked myself uh, this question, why is it that one day I'm uh, going around, uh, I'm loving life, I'm happy, I'm, I'm satisfied, I'm contented, and it's as if things are going the direction that I want them to go, and things can change just like that. That, that, that really an hour from now or a day from now, I can look out over the horizon and the storm clouds are beginning to form. And I look back at just a few days earlier or a week earlier and wonder why was it that I was so happy and contented and now I'm discouraged and I feel defeated. Can I suggest to you this, and I've mentioned this to you at some point in a series we were in in the past, Here's a simple summary, I believe, of most depression. Uh, Things that I think should happen never do. Things that I think should never happen never do. Things that I think should never happen do. You have things like that in your life? Things that you think should never happen and they happen and things that you think should happen and guess what? They don't happen. Or how about this? Things that you think should happen right now and they're not going to happen for some time way off in the future. I think most depression can fall into those three categories. Things I think should never happen do. Things I think should happen don't. And things I think should happen now don't happen until later. And so what happens is we focus on things and we become discouraged and it can go on for months and for years. And can I say to you this morning that I believe that that is Satan's plan, the ruler of the darkness of this world. I believe he desires for a moment of discouragement 
to become lasting discouragement, which leads to bondage and despair. And could I possibly just suggest to you this morning that that's where many of ourselves find ourselves today. We are paralyzed because of depression, because of discouragement. Now, I want to say at the outset, in case there were any doubt, that I'm not a doctor. Um, I I want you to know that. I don't claim to be a a clinical expert on uh, depression. But I have found it interesting what some who do not claim to be followers of Jesus have written about depression. There's a group of doctors uh, in the UK, and uh, they've developed a a whole website that deals with uh, depression. In fact, you you can go through and you can actually take a short course on depression. Now, you wouldn't do that just, you know, I don't have anything else to do. I think I'll take a course on depression. But for counselors, for those that deal with people, that's the purpose of this particular website. This is not a Christian website, but here is what these doctors wrote. Depression cannot be said to be a disease because it is not primarily a biological disorder. That is, the root cause of the symptoms are not usually physical. How do we know? Well, here's one way. They wrote this. People born since 1945 are 10 times more likely to suffer from depression than those born before. Now, how many of you were born since 1945? All right, that's a good number of you. According to this particular study, you are 10 times more likely to suffer from depression That's an outstanding, astounding figure. And they say it cannot be explained away by people going to their doctor more. Depression being diagnosed more easily or any of those things because these things were taken into account in this study. They wrote this, human biology doesn't change that quickly. What it does show clearly is that most depression is not biological. Did you hear me? Most depression is not biological. Depression does have biological effects, but studies now show that less than 10% of depression is biologically caused. (laughs) Now, here is what's the most fascinating thing in this particular study. Again, I remind you, this is not in Christianity today. This is not uh, something from uh, uh, some religious book or material. They went on to write this. The most widely accepted explanation for this, this sort of phenomenon is that society has changed. Over the past five decades, there has been, and they give five things, a breakdown in the extended family, a dispersal of communities. In other words, we don't live in community with people. We don't have as much association with one another. We're not even with our neighbors, with friends. An increased focus on material wealth, can I again remind you that a pastor didn't, didn't say this? this is a, did I say this? This is a group of secular psychiatrists, psychologists in the UK. Number four, an overwhelming prevalence of the news media. Can I get an amen? That can discourage me. And then number five, an increase in focus on self. Now, here's what's interesting, that if I was writing a study and I wanted to kind of frame it in a certain way on this topic of depression, and I could write down five things, I would probably list all five of those reasons. They conclude this particular section by writing this, 
all of which and more besides, in other words, there's more to it than just that, and they add up to a potent recipe for depression. In March of 1999, Psychology Today wrote regarding depression as just a chemical imbalance wildly misconstrues the disorder. Now, I know some of you are saying, wow, what a, what a horrible way to begin a series. Well, that, you know, I, if I wasn't depressed, I am now. Uh, well, take hope because I'm getting to some good stuff here, right? The question you will automatically ask, especially, I know statistically, there'll be a number of you in this room and immediately you begin to think, well, is it wrong for me to take medication for depression? The simple answer is that I believe for a short time, it could be beneficial for a doctor to prescribe uh, medication to work through some serious issues of depression. I believe that to be true. I've seen that happen, by the way, in my own uh, extended family. So I don't want you to think I'm insensitive to that. But if medication, and hear me say this and and hear me carefully, if medication is your default because you refuse to work through issues in your life honestly and humbly, and you refuse to submit to clear biblical principle in your life, then you have a problem. And I hope you hear me say that. Uh, in the spirit which is intended this morning. Uh, maybe for, for some of you, the, the greatest thing that could happen as a result of our time together this morning, that you would realize that your depression, that God has an answer for some of that. And some of that is because of your own inability to deal honestly and humbly with the guidance of biblical pr- uh, uh, principles for the discouragement and the depression that you feel in your life. Now, also let me be clear that we're talking about depression not a myriad of uh, other mental disorders that are commonly uh, agreed upon and understood uh, to be biological. And here's the truth, that while I'm not a medical doctor, I do have a pretty good handle on Scripture. And and I do believe, by the way, and we we say this on a regular basis, that, that God gave us His Word as the guidebook for our lives. I am so convinced that for so many of us, it really does come down to a simple answer if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, and and, and that is that you begin to uh, take the Word of God and read it and make application of it in your life. Uh, For for so many of us, it's it's true of all of us, but for so many of us, we neglect the the reading, the, the, the teaching, the understanding of God's Word, and we should not be surprised that our lives are in total disarray when we've totally ignored the owner's manual. Not in every circumstance, but in many circumstances, our depression is caused by the choices that we make. And as a result of the choices that we make, that leads us to depression. You say, well, how do you know that to be true? Well, a couple of simple verses. Proverbs 23, 7 says this in the King James, For as he thinketh in his heart, as a man or a woman or a middle school student or a high school student, as you think in your heart, in your innermost being, that's who you are. So in other words, if you have wrong thinking, what's going to happen? You're going to have wrong actions, wrong behavior. Proverbs 4.23, we've talked about this verse before. Keep your heart with all diligence. Why? Because out of it flow the issues of life. 
In other words, you have to be careful about the things that you think about because your patterns of thinking will deeply, deeply influence and impact you. And if you're not careful, it does lead to depression. And here's what happens. When we begin to believe lies, we slip into depression. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, when you begin to believe lies about yourself, when you begin to believe that um, uh, you're, you're worse than you think that you are, when you begin to believe that your circumstances are like nobody else's and nobody else has ever been through what you're going through, you're the only one on the planet. When you begin to believe lies about other people, that they really are as bad as what you think that they are, that their motive, really, their existence on this earth is just simply to make your life miserable. When you begin to believe lies about yourself, about others, or even about God, we slip into dark places in our lives. And that leads us to hopelessness and despair. And we forfeit the joy that God intends for us to have in our lives. Romans 12.2 says that we are to be transformed how? Do you remember? By the renewing of your what? Of your mind. That's how we're going to be transformed and changed. God says it's through the renewing process of your mind. And how does that happen? That happens when you have a commitment in your life to follow the guidebook that we know as the Word of God. Now, I love the transparency by which Scripture is authored and how we see men and women in God's Word, and God lets us, lets us see them just as they are. All the flaws, all the, 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 the nasty, dirty parts of their life, all of the deep, dark places in their life. And, and there's a guy we're going to talk about this morning. In fact, James introduces us uh, to him in his book, and he says that there was a man that was just like us. Do you remember what his name was? Elijah, right? James 5, 17. He was a man just like us. He was God's great prophet, but at the end of the day, even though he was really great and God used him to do some really awesome things, he was just like us. And here's the truth. Elijah experienced extreme fear and extreme loneliness. There were times when Elijah himself doubted whether or not God would be faithful in his particular situation. He permitted anger into his life, and as a result of his anger and frustration with other people and his disappointments, uh, it began to garble his thinking. His depression was so great, and this is where some of you have been before in your life. His depression was so great that at one point in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, he prays that God would take his life. And I love that James says he was a man just like us. And from his life, we can, we can see this truth that even those of us that want to passionately follow Jesus, and, and we, we, we spend time uh, in his word, and we want to do the right things, Elijah's life demonstrates for us that even when we are striving to be those type of people, we can get down at times, we can get depressed, we can get discouraged. Now, if you think about it this way, nobody in Scripture saw God's display of the miraculous more often than Elijah. In fact, Elijah was one of only two individuals in Scripture that never died. Um, I, I, I would like to be the third one. Like, I don't really want to die, right? I don't know what that's like, and I don't really want to experience that. 
I'd kind of like God just to come down and go, you know, the rapture, here you are. Or even if he doesn't take you all at the same time, just come get me. Just let me just go, right? I mean, he's eventually going to come back for you. That's not what I meant. But, but Elijah was one of only two. You remember the other one? Enoch, right? Elijah was one of only two that did not experience death but was transported right to heaven. And here's the really cool thing. In Matthew chapter 17, you remember what's happening there? We refer to it as the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus goes up there and he has a few of his disciples with him and he lets them see him in all of his glory. And Jesus is there and Moses is there. And you know who else is there? Elijah's like, woo, here I am. Elijah's right there. And here's the really interesting thing about Elijah, that when you look at Moses being there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, we know a lot about his background, about his family, about his growing up. Elijah, we don't know hardly anything about him. In fact, if you have your Bibles or an electronic device of some sort with a Bible app on it, uh, go to 1 Kings chapter 17. In 1 Kings chapter 17, this is how Elijah's introduced. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Now, if you're really a, a student of the Word, you, you may know this, but for most of us, we don't know this, that most Bible scholars, in fact, I have yet to see a Bible scholar who can correctly identify where Tishbe even is. They know where Gilead is, but they don't even know where Tishbe is. So we, we might say that um, he's from someplace somewhere um, we don't know anything about his upbringing. We don't know anything about him. He seems to be so insignificant, and yet he makes such a significant contribution uh, to God's people and God's plan for his people. So Elijah appears on the scene uh, when uh, it seems as if the people and their leaders can't get much worse than they are. Uh, King Ahab is leading the people to worship idols. Ahab was a horrible man. He was uh, the worst, in fact, if you turn back to chapter 16 and look in verse 30, it says that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. <laughs> and if you've looked at the kings, they did some pretty bad stuff. I mean, when, when, when that's what's written about you, that you're the worst yet. Verse 33 says that he did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Let it, in other words, if you take all of the kings that came before Ahab, all of them together didn't provoke the Lord to more anger than Ahab did. He was really bad. And if that weren't bad enough, he was married to a really bad woman. Now, there's, there's good women that are married to really bad men, but you don't really find a lot of really bad men that are married to even worse women. But that was true. Her name was Jezebel. Her father was the king of Sidon, and they worshipped Baal. Baal uh, was a fertility god. He was believed to enable the earth to produce great crops and for uh, people to be uh, fertile and produce children. And Jezebel then marries Ahab, and as a result, she, because of her controlling influence in the kingdom, they introduced Baal worship into the culture of Egypt, or uh, in Israel. And this is the setting in which Elijah is introduced into the biblical narrative. How'd you like to be Elijah? There's nothing that's said about you. It's just, here's Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. And oh, by the way, I want you to come on the scene 
And I I want you to come at just such a time that we've got the worst, most evil king that's ever been present, and he's got the worst wife that you could ever imagine. I want you to come now, and I want you to do my work. And that's what he does. So the first message that he brings is one sentence. Don't you wish preachers today could just narrow it down to one simple paragraph, right? He narrows it down, not just to one simple paragraph, but to one sentence. Look in the second part of... uh, Uh, Chapter 17, verse uh, 1, the last part. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, he said, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, until God tells me there's going to be no more rain here, see ya. How's that for the first sermon? I mean, you talk about a mic drop, right? He just comes in. He's right in front of the most evil king that Israel has ever known. He comes in and he says, hey, by the way, it's not going to rain anymore until I say so. Boom. And he walks out. Now, if that's not bad enough, God must have known that Ahab wasn't going to receive this too well because I find some humor in verse 2. In verse 2, it says, And the word of the Lord came to him and says, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. Uh, So Elijah goes in and he goes, I've never done this prophet thing before. That sounds pretty cool. You want me to say what? Yeah, I can memorize that. I don't even need notes. And he goes in and he tells him that, drops the mic, walks out, and it's as if he gets out the door and God says to him, uh, hey, like, uh, you might want to run and hide yourself because this dude's ticked off. And so here's the really incredible thing that for the next three years, God will take care of Elijah in an unbelievable way. He will provide for him. He will do miraculous works over and over and over again. And I want to give you just a quick overview. How many of you have heard the story of Elijah? Tough, you're going to hear it again. All right, because there's a lot of really great stuff in here. Some of you are newer followers of Jesus and you haven't read the word a lot. This is going to encourage you to read it when you hear the story of Elijah. So Elijah goes out and he camps next to this brook that's called Cherith. It's just a little bit of a stream. And and God says, you're going to get your water from this little stream. And here's what else I'm going to do. I'm going to take ravens and they're going to bring you breakfast and dinner. Now, how cool is that? I thought about that this week. Have you ever seen a bird like when you're at the park? This big bird swoops in. This little kid's just, you know, looking around. And they got their little peanut butter sandwich and the bird swoops in. Oh! and it grabs the sandwich, right? That's what these birds do. They're just nasty birds. In fact, the ravens were unclean. It's amazing that God would choose to use the ravens, but he says to Elijah, hey, don't worry about it because the ravens, every day, they're going to bring you breakfast and lunch. Is that not awesome? I mean, can't you just imagine that after a few days, Elijah's going, yeah, come on, yeah, come on, drop it off. What do you got today? Well, we thought you'd enjoy Taco Bell today. So we've got... We've got a couple of chalupas, and we've got some nachos and some... And, and hey, be ready for dinner, because the Olive Garden, never-ending pasta bowl, it is on for tonight. And we'll be delivering that about 6 o'clock. Have a nice day. Ah, 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 and they fly off, and every single day, that's what happens. I think sometimes we read Scripture, and we just go, yeah, what's the big deal? That's a big deal, right? I mean, if ravens brought you lunch today, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That'd be pretty awesome. After a while, the stream dries up, and God says, I want you to go to Zarephath, and there you're going to find a widow. And when you find that widow, she's going to take care of you. And so he goes to Zarephath, and he gets there, and he he sees this woman, and she's gathering sticks, and he says, would you give me some water? 
She brings him some water, and he says, I don't want some water. I'd like some food as well. And she looks at him like, are you crazy? We're in a drought. And he said, hey, just, just, she said, she said I've got just a little bit of oil, and I've got just a little bit of flour. I'm going to make one more meal, and then my son and I are going to die. And Elijah, he's just crazy enough to believe that, that he's doing what God wants him to do. And so Elijah says, well, hey, feed me first. Can you imagine? Here's a widow. She's got a little boy. They're probably skin and bones at this point because they haven't eaten so much. And he goes, just feed me first. And you feed me, and your flour and your oil are never going to dry up. It's never going to end until this drought ends. And then the woman, she's just crazy enough that that's what she does. And the text says that for several years, every single day, the flour's there and the oil's there. It never runs out. A few months later, the widow's son dies, and as a result of the widow's son dying, he's, she's pretty despondent, and obviously she tells Elijah, and he's crying out to God, God, how could you do this? Look at what this woman has done for me. The text says that Elijah goes to the boy, and he cries out to God, and he prays that God might give him back his life. And literally, Elijah takes the little boy and goes, here, here he is. Sorry for the confusion. We read those things and we think that that just happens. In 1 Kings 18, after about three years of God just taking care of Elijah, one of the most incredible events in the Old Testament happens. You get to 1 Kings chapter 18 and Elijah appears back on the scene after three years and Ahab and Jezebel have not been able to find him and so they've been killing every prophet that they come in contact with. Elijah uh, tells Ahab, that I'm back and I want you to gather all the people on Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal and of Asherah. And in 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah tells the people to decide who is God. If God is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But you people have got to decide. And so he issues a challenge. Why don't you go find two bulls? We're going to build two altars. We're going to put bulls uh, on the altars you're going to get one, I'm going to get one, and we're going to call out to our gods. And whichever one consumes the sacrifice with fire, then he's the God. And so the prophets of Baal go first. For six hours, they cry out to Baal. They scream, they dance, they cut themselves. And Elijah begins to mock, mock them. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he doesn't hear you. Maybe he's busy with other people and you need to wait for an appointment. Then all of a sudden, Elijah says, step aside. He prepares his altar to Jehovah God. He gives direction to the people to pour water all over the bowl and the wood so that it fills the trenches around the altar. And then he prays for God to bring fire down from heaven, and God does it. Boom! Who's God? And you can just kind of see Elijah just strutting off going, there you go. Any doubts? The text says that all the prophets of Baal were killed and What's interesting to me is that Elijah tells Ahab to go get something to eat while he prays. <laughs> Ahab's just kind of standing around. He's watched all these prophets be killed, and Elijah says, I'm going to go pray, and he goes and prays that God might send rain again. And he sends his servant out to look at the sea. And seven times he sends him until his servant comes back and says, uh, tells Elijah, I see a cloud forming that is about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah goes, that's it! Ahab, get down the mountain, because if you don't get down the mountain, you're not going to be able to get down, because rain is going to come. And in verse 45, we see that rain comes. And if that's not miraculous enough, here's a middle-aged man. Let's just pretend 
He's my age. That's middle age. Elijah tucks his robe inside of his belt, and he runs all the way to Jezreel, somewhere between 17 and 20 miles. You can see him because Ahab's running around, riding around in the chariot trying to get back and tell Jezebel what happened. And Elijah's just running right by him. Hello! You know, he's running right by him and he gets all the way back to Jezreel ahead of Ahab. And I think, what a great place for the story to end. And you've got a story just like that. Where you've had great moments in your life and you think, let's just stop time right here because this is the way it should be. And we'd love for the end of the story to be that Elijah lived happily ever after in the castle of the king with all of life's pleasures until his last days. But that's not the way the story ends because there's chapter 19. And Elijah then experiences certainly what we know according to the biblical record, the darkest time of his life. And it happens to all of us, doesn't it? You've either been depressed and discouraged, you currently are depressed and discouraged, or you will be depressed and discouraged. How does it happen? Well, for, for Elijah, it began with physical exhaustion. You find that to be true in your lives? When you burn a candle at both ends, when you don't get the sleep that you need, when you work hours that are too long and you don't take time to rest and enjoy your, your family and your friends and those things that God's given us to enjoy, but you just simply stay focused and, and you get to the point of physical exhaustion. Have you ever been there? Imagine if you would have talked to Elijah at the end of this day and you'd have said, hey, so what did you do today? Well, not, not a whole lot. I mean, I... I I confronted 450 prophets of Baal up there on Mount Carmel. You might have heard about it. All the people were up there. And then I, I, I prayed down fire from heaven. And that really took some effort. I, I prayed down fire from heaven, and God sent fire down from heaven and consumed my whole sacrifice, the rocks, the water, everything. I didn't mention it, but in uh, chapter 18, uh, uh, the text seems to indicate that, that Elijah personally slaughters 450 prophets of Baal, and in by doing so, he cleanses the nation from Baal worship. And then I, then, I, then I prayed to God that he would send rain. You know, it hasn't rained in three years, and I prayed fervently that, that, that he would send the rain. And it rained the first time in three years. And, and, and then I needed to get back to Jezreel because I wanted to see what, what, what uh, Jezebel's reaction would be to all of this. And so I ran 20 miles past a man that was riding in a chariot. I didn't do much today. Just kind of an ordinary day. Depression oftentimes happens after physical exhaustion. It also happens after great things happen in your life. Have you noticed that to be true? You'd think that Elijah would be as upbeat and as encouraged as he's ever been in his life after he saw God do what he did on Mount Carmel. But the truth is that oftentimes after we experience great moments in our life, depression comes. You've been there. You got that job that you waited for for so long and 
you got the job and it wasn't exactly like you thought it would be. Now you're working more than you've ever worked or you wonder if you're performing at the level you should be performing at. You finally cross the stage at graduation and you're looking forward to going to that college only rather than getting an acceptance letter, you get a rejection letter. Or worse yet, you cross that stage at a college graduation and you think, now I'm prepared and I'll go out there into the workplace and I'll, I'll start my career and I'll make money and I'll pay back all my school loans and then the job doesn't come like you thought it would be. New parents often experience this depression right after a really exciting time called the birth of children, right? We anticipate the birth of our children, and, and some of you, this is where you are right now. You're, you're, you're really excited about that, right? Because you're anticipating the birth of your child, or you're right in the midst of that right now. The child has come, and you're really excited, and then that little boy, that little girl is very healthy, and that's all really great, but they don't seem to sleep. And you're de- depressed, and you're discouraged, and the baby's beautiful and you're thankful, but the lack of sleep and the change in your lifestyle is difficult. How many of us have experienced these moments even after marriage? So many of you, this is where you're living today. You couldn't wait to be married and you married that person that you thought, I'm going to be with this person for the rest of my life. My life is going to be awesome. Look at the things we're going to do together. And then other things happened. See, depression often follows great things happening in our life, and depression also sometimes comes after extreme disappointment. Ahab, running all the way to Jezreel, was just thinking, man, I am the man. Running by that chariot, he gets to Jezreel, and all of a sudden, we read in verse 3, it says, or in verse 1 of chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to kill you in the next 24 hours. How do you go from slaughtering 450 prophets of Baal, praying down fire from heaven, praying that God would provide rain for the first time in three years, Two, verse 3, then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life. He goes about a hundred miles in fear of his life and he's got his servant with him and he finally tells his servant to, to stay behind and he goes even on further and he prays, verse 4, for God to take his life. Verses 10 and 14, he complains about the fact that he's been a zealot for the cause of God and everyone else has given in to false gods. He's the only one left. Elijah is depressed. Let me tell you this. Many Bible teachers have suggested this. It's not necessarily unique with me. But if you want to be depressed in your life, now I realize nobody's going to raise their hand and go, ooh, me, pick me. I want to be depressed. But if you want to be depressed in your life, you do these three things, and you'll find them to be true in Elijah's life. Number one, go someplace where you're all alone. Elijah just comes off of this great uh, uh, victory, and verse 5 says, when he gets out there into the wilderness, into the desert, he sits under a juniper tree. Do you know anything about a juniper tree? A juniper tree is an almost lifeless, leafless bush. Like none of you would say hey, let's go to the park and sit under a juniper tree, right? Get some shade, because the juniper tree didn't really provide much shade. But you know what the juniper tree provided? Nobody else was sitting under that tree. 
Wasn't anybody else out in the wilderness. There wasn't anybody else out under that tree. And the tragic fact is this, that depression causes us to remove ourselves from exactly the thing that we need the most. And you know what that is? People. People. We need people in our lives. God did not create us to live on islands. But what we do is we shut out those people, those people who love us and want to support us. Support us. Those people, by the way, who could speak reality and truth into our lives. We separate ourselves from all of that. Chuck Swindoll says, we close the curtains, we silence the phone, and we lock the door. You want to be depressed? That's a sure way to do it. Find a place all by yourself. Number two is to be critical and negative. Anybody have a problem with that? I do. I know when I'm getting into my dark places because I get really, really critical and I get really, really negative. And that's exactly what Elijah does. The way that depression works is that you get focused on the negative. And before you know it, you take something that's really small and shouldn't be that big of a deal, and you've multiplied it into this. And all of the good things in your life have been overshadowed by the negative. That's what happens. You want to be depressed? Be critical and negative. Look at what Elijah said. Elijah said, I'm the only one. And he wasn't. Obadiah in chapter 18 in the early verses says he was a godly man who feared the Lord. He had hidden a hundred prophets. He had them in caves and he'd been feeding them. Elijah knows that. God's going to remind him later on, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 people that have not bowed their knee to Baal. He says, I'm no better than my fathers. I've accomplished nothing. I've wasted my entire life. I'd say that's being critical and negative. And then number three, if you want to be depressed, you learn to be forgetful. Elijah forgot the God he served. This was the man who had birds cater him breakfast and dinner. This was the man who God fed from a bottomless jar of oil and a bottomless container of flour for several years. This is the same guy who just had a major victory when fire from heaven came down and consumed rocks and water. Elijah had seen many, many miracles in his life. It wasn't like God had never come through for him. James McDonald said this, Don't you want to say, hey, Elijah, God has never failed you. He may have kept you waiting a few times, but he's always done it in the best time and in the best way. Why are you doubting him? You want to be discouraged? You forget what God's done for you in the past. That in your times of discouragement, he's the same God. So in verse 9, unknowingly, Elijah enters into God's counseling office. And can I suggest to you that God's counseling room is the best place for you and I to be? Elijah finds four things in God's counseling room, which I want to remind you quickly as we we come to a close. In verse 9, unknowingly, Elijah enters into God's office, and after God reveals himself in the form of an angel... In just a small, uh, soft voice, God supernaturally sends him food and rest in verses 5 and 6. In fact, I think it's interesting that Elijah's asleep and he wakes up and goes, Oh, wow, somebody brought me ACP from Lost Trace. I wonder if it's you ravens. I don't. God brings it to him. There's food right there. It's cooking right there for him. God provides for him. God gives him rest because he knows he's physically exhausted. And can I tell you that when you are depressed, you need to embrace the help 
that God provides for you. And what is that? Well, certainly we know it's the Word of God. For some of us, it's the last thing we go to, and yet it should be the first thing that we go to. God's Word brings us comfort. It brings us peace. Sometimes it's a person that might come into your life that may give you a word that you need to hear of, 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 uh, of encouragement or even sometimes of correction. Embrace the help that God provides. Number two, see God for who He really is. You see, that's the problem because in depression, we don't see God for who he really is, do we? We begin to believe lies. Remember what I said earlier? We believe lies about ourselves. We believe lies about God. Watch how God showed himself to Elijah. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 19. He says this, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. (laughs) I was thinking about that this week, about how I'd love to go out in my backyard After hearing the whisper of God, hey, go out in the backyard. I'm about ready to pass by. Would that not be awesome? Go back to the deck. Just stand there because I'm coming. And look what God does. It says, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind comes an earthquake. But the text says, the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And I love this. Have you ever seen this before? Look at verse 12, at the end of verse 12, and it says, After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Isn't that cool? Here's God. The wind's coming by. And Elijah's going, yeah, not so impressive. I mean, I I, I saw you raise a little kid back to life. Birds fed me. I mean, that's not really that impressive. Earthquake shakes, and he goes, yeah, what else you got? Fire. Yeah, I've seen fire. You can, remember, you can see, I mean, the rocks were all gone. The water was all gone. I've seen that before. And then there's the low whisper of God. For me, and I think it may be true for you, that those are the moments where God ministers to us in such an incredible way, where he shows us who he really is. I find it amazing that God doesn't say, Elijah, what are you doing? Look what I've done with your life. You're a nobody from Tishbe. Who even knows where Tishbe is? Get yourself together, man. Come on. God doesn't do that. It's just a low whisper. It's as if God says, Elijah, it's me. It's going to be okay. I have a plan. I'm not done with you yet. There's a comeback that's about ready to happen. Number three, rediscover God's purpose for your life. God gives gives Elisha some very specific instructions in verses 15 to 17. He says you're going to anoint a couple of new kings. And by the way, I've got a friend for you. His name is Elisha. One of the surest ways to move out of depression is for you to embrace the purpose for which you were created, to stop focusing on yourself and get involved once again in the mission of God, and that's what he's going to do with Elijah. And then lastly, lastly, if you want to get out of depression, I would suggest to you that you get involved with people again. After this, God sends Elijah back into Uh, civilization. He tells him there's 7,000 people that still haven't bowed the knee. You're not the only one. 
Go back with those people and do those things again. Can I suggest that for some of you, that probably is your greatest need today? Short of right thinking, which is primary, which is foundational, for some of you, you need to get back again with people. You need to go back to your life group again. Some of you need to get into a life group. Some of you say, I don't like my life group. Then leave it. Get involved in a new life group with some new people that maybe you'll like better than those people. But the point is, do life with a group of people. Get involved with people again. And Elijah's life so vividly illustrates for us that because of God's grace and mercy, as Jerry said earlier, it's never too late. And you are never too far gone for God to give you a comeback story and God to do something incredible in your life once again. The psalmist said, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. God wants to do a new thing. And I pray that you'll let him do that in your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. We recognize that um, we are people that are broken, we're flawed as a result of that. We, we live in a broken, fallen world, and God, we acknowledge that it's so easy for us to slip into these times of deep discouragement and depression in our lives. And Father, I pray for my friends that are here this morning that find themselves there today. I pray that you might reveal yourself to them in a fresh, in a new way, and they might have a proper view of who you are. I pray that they would get re-engaged in the mission of God and why they're here on this planet to begin with. I pray that you cause them to engage with people once again and embrace those things which you've provided with them, for them. God, would you do that work in our hearts we recognize there's going to be times of depression in our lives, but we don't have to be, we don't have to be uh, conquered by those things. Because of the cross, because of the gospel, we realize that there's comebacks, there's opportunity for you, as Isaiah the prophet said, to do a new thing in our lives. And I pray that that will take place this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.